everybody, and welcome to a weekend review edition of the Total Soccer Show. At least I think it's a weekend review because I don't know what day it is because it's the time period after Christmas, before New Year's, when days don't have any meaning. But I am uh, Taylor Rockwell. I know that has meaning, and I know that I'm joined by Ryan Bailey. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Taylor. I don't know what day it is either, but all I know is that Wolves seem to play every day, and there's <laughs> soccer every day, and it's wonderful. Yeah, we are, we are going to do two different Wolves games today. That's the frequency of the games. But I was looking at, we've got uh, New Year's Day matches coming up, so it just feels like, is it Monday, or is it Wednesday, is it Friday? I don't really know anymore. I'm sure eventually we'll know times and dates and things like that. Yeah, maybe, but let's just be happy that we've had a nice Daryl weekender. Without without Wolves content. So much Wolves content. Well, let's start with the happier Daryl content, then move to the slightly sadder Daryl content. Let's start (laughs) with Wolves' dramatic uh, come-from-behind 3-2 victory over Manchester City. Uh, Wolves go a man up, courtesy of a red card to Ederson. City able to get uh, two goals with some VAR penalty assistance. Uh, And then Raheem Sterling with a lovely chip. Wolves pull it back, get the win, get the three points. Really make it seem like a title race is not going to be happening this season. Ryan, from this game, where are your thumbs? (sighs) <sighs> I, I think it has to be thumbs down for Mr. Pep Guardiola at All this right. point, doesn't it? Because, I mean, who, who are we mere mortals to suggest that Pep Guardiola isn't doing something correct? But it seemed like there was some odd decisions made here. Once again, the Fernandinho thing going in, in the back line. I mean, we saw a bit of uh, some, some Eric Garcia action get in this game, didn't we? Mm-hmm. But uh, I still think he should be a... a, a thought of, you know, a, a, a little bit more highly than Gar- a, a, in Guardiola's mind. Yep. And I don't know, it seems like Raheem Sterling's playing a lot. He seems like he might be a bit fatigued. Why, mm. why not give him a bit of rotation? I know we've got injuries with Leroy Sane and, you know, not as many wing options as he might like, but it seems like some, some odd things are going on and taking off, taking off Mares and ke- taking off Kevin De Bruyne and bringing on Garcia and Gundogan. It was obviously I could see why he did that kind of thing. It was sort of, you know, fortifying and defending, but it seemed to almost invite Wolves on a little bit more. And yeah. I don't know. It just seems like, Pep, I, I don't know what you're doing, man. Tell me. Tell me what you're doing. It, uh, interesting points there and a couple of things that I would respond to is, number one, like I think you're absolutely right that when City are sort of in their form, when they're top of the table, when they look like the Man City we've seen in the past two seasons, I think this probably would have been a game where Phil Foden starts and maybe Phil Foden mm. ends up like getting an assist and they get the win. And it's just because I think when... Things are sort of going Man City's way. I think Pep is able to experiment a little bit more with a little bit more freedom. Obviously, when it's not, I think that's when he sort of has to like buckle down a bit more, and that's when you do see Raheem Sterling playing a lot. Uh, he was able to, what, when he misses the penalty, then he gets another chance, misses that one, but scores the rebound, so at least it has a little bit of the confidence to score the second. But, but like Sterling aside, I think you're right that you're seeing a bit more questionable substitutions, obviously some questions with the starting lineup. I mean, when you had Fernandinho and Otamendi starting, I was sitting with Daryl with Darryl for the start of this game, and I was just sort of like, I feel like you're going to have chances with uh, those two center-back options. And so to your final point, when he then kind of changes it up and goes a bit more defensive, I've had this criticism of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer this season. It certainly invites a team on, and it makes that team a bit more aggressive and feels like, okay, we've already got the man advantage. They're taking off their creative players. They're trying to see this game out. We can sort of feel confident going Going forward, and I think anytime you give a team that extra boost of confidence, you may end up having an issue. And in this case, Man City absolutely did. Yeah, definitely. And it's just going back to that that centre back pairing, Otamendi and Fernandinho. Look at that the logical centre back pairing. <laughs> tell me that is the pairing of a, a, a of a team that could win the league. Otamendi's probably mm. the worst player that Pep Guardiola's had, right? <laughs> and Fernandinho is out of position and thirty four years old. Yep. What is going on here? I mean, and, and, and to your point, 
like at least it wasn't Fernandinho getting skinned for the third goal, but it was Otamendi just getting torched by Matt Doherty, who's a right back, right winger, oh. what have you. But like just how easily Doherty was able to get past Otamendi. Otamendi ends up like on the ground, he falls over. Just those sort of moments and individual mistakes, and there were several of those. Uh, we saw Raheem Sterling getting chewed out by Pep Guardiola because he kind of gives up the ball in the middle of the field that allows Wolves to counterattack swiftly and get their their uh, opening goal. And it felt like individual mistakes from Man City. Uh, that there was a Sterling one for the first goal. There's Benjamin Mendy for the second, then for mm. the third. Lots of individual mistakes culminating in uh, a team mistake. I would say it, it did feel like once City sort of lost a bit of the impetus, lost a bit of the motivation. You saw them sit off. You saw them be a little bit less less efficient in their passing and in their possession. And as a result, Wolves got the win. So a couple things here. Mm-hmm. Let's start with the, the Benjamin Mendy mistake. Let's do it. Uh, my colleague at Yahoo, Henry Bushnell, made uh, the argument that this is why Premier League players dive. Because if Mendy had gone down when he was under pressure from Troy when he gave the ball up, mm-hmm. would have been an instant blow up for a free kick. And the fact that he didn't cost them. Yep. So what do you think about that? I think I think he's probably true because like or he's probably correct because if you watch this again and I thought that too in the moment I think a big part of it is that Mendy doesn't fall over and I think with the way Triore goes into him in that moment it looks like Mendy's trying to like screen the ball I think he's trying to shepherd it out of bounds I'm not sure why I don't really know what his plan is but yeah. I think maybe he's just standing a bit too far off the ball and that's why the referee lets it go. But the way Traore comes through with the physicality he has, I think absolutely, if Mendy went down or at least complained, you would have seen maybe at least some debate. Maybe there would have been a review of was there more aggressive contact than the referee saw. But it was telling to me that not only does he he like not really flop to the ground, Mendy, but then he doesn't really protest at all. And even when the goal happens, he, he just sort of looks very upset with himself, which is justifiable. He, he should be. have been. But... <laughs> I, I take your point that I think if he had sold that one up and rolled around a little bit more, maybe it at least gets an extended look. Not saying I advocate for diving, but gamesmanship is gamesmanship. Yeah, it makes me feel a bit dirty suggesting it should have gone down. But the other thing uh, I'll pick up on what you said there is the Otamendi. Uh, that, um, another thumbs up I will give to Matt Doherty and Raul Jimenez for that combination for that mm-hmm. third goal. That was absolutely wonderful. Yep. You've got Doherty cutting in field as he likes to do. That little one-two he played with Jimenez. And the way that Jimenez sort of waited just a millisecond longer to let the to release the back heel to him. It just felt like they were communicating so well, and I love the way that Doherty sort of uh, cut through traffic to, to to get that shot on goal. Although part of that traffic, a big part of the tra- traffic was Nicholas Otamendi, <laughs> who was kind of stretched between two players. He couldn't yeah. quite make the decision who to track, and he went with neither. I think was yep. <laughs> his response there. And I, I put a tweet out at the times saying, you know, the way Doherty showed the confidence of a striker weaving through traffic was great. And someone replied to me, uh, the legend Mito21 replied to me, he went through traffic? That was Otamendi he dribbled by. I would expect you to dribble by Otamendi while interviewing someone and looking at a camera. Which I is mean, kind of I would expect fair. that too. I would expect that too, but that's <laughs> just because you're phenomenal at what you do, Ryan. But Aww. I would say, yeah, less so traffic, more so traffic cone in the case of uh, Nicole Otamendi. <laughs> uh, and, and, uh, and really isn't able to do very much for that, uh, for that Wolves third goal and I think we should also mention at that point uh, how good Adama Traore was especially in that second half Um, because I think it's easy to sort of do the cliche pace and power Uh, we don't want to do that on this show but it is easy to do that with him because he has the, the, the physicality and the speed to cause problems to defenses what I think was really evident in this game is how much teams fear that combined with his technical ability because yeah. you saw players really not wanting to 
take him on physically, obviously, but then also get too close into those 1v1 situations. It seemed like players were more content to sit off a bit more. And anytime you're doing that, it allows the attacker to sort of take control of the situation. And case in point, uh, the second goal for Wolves, the Jimenez, like just kind of gets in the right place at the right time, six yards out, slots at home. But that's mm-hmm. because uh, Troy wins that ball off Mendy, then megs Fernandinho because I think Fernandinho doesn't want to commit too much. He doesn't want to get in there and kind of fight for that ball. And I think he's a little scared of the footwork of Traore. He stands off, but obviously keeps the wrong shape, and that's why he's able to get megged. That's why Wolves are able to get the equalizer. But sort of the technical play from Traore, obviously his goal that he smashes in from distance after Wolves were pretty ruthless in their counterattack, you just saw, I think, a player rounding into form that is going to get him a lot of looks from a lot of other teams. Maybe not this January, but certainly this summer. Yeah, definitely. I like the way he was deployed in the Liverpool game a few days later where he was brought on sort of on the hour mark and when everyone was tired and you see all this Sonic the Hedgehog guy running around like crazy, which I thought was a really good way of using him. And I think he does make me think of Sonic the Hedgehog in that he's so, so, so fast, but not 100% under control of his faculties, I would say. <laughs> and it's weird that he always has all those rings with him at all the time, and anytime he gets tackled, yeah. the rings go flying in the air. It's a strange distraction. You wouldn't expect that to be legal. And but... why is that fox with the tails always around him? <laughs> I, I, I don't understand. But can we give a? Can we also give a thumbs up to um, to, to wolves in general? Uh, oh, we can. Were... I just I just am still enjoying your tails reference. But yes, let's give thumbs up to wolves. <laughs> I was trying to tie it to wolves somehow. I couldn't quite get there. But uh, wolves were nineteenth after six games. Yep in this league and would you have predicted they would have taken six points off of Manchester City and been knocking on the door of the Champions League at this point they are just such a competently run club aren't they we know they've got great links to 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 getting in good players and we know they've got a bit of money behind them but they don't splash it around they just do things well don't they Mm -hmm. they just do things well and I think, like, if you look at the moves they did this summer, it's a lot of strengthening and strengthening with depth. And it wasn't mm. sort of changing things up and bringing in a lot of high-profile players to theoretically take them to the next level. It felt like it was continuing on with what has been a blueprint and a plan for how to succeed. And you're right that it wasn't working early on. Now it certainly is. They're knocking on top four, top six area. Uh, we can talk more about their top four aspirations uh, if we so choose. But first, we should probably talk about that Liverpool-Wolves game that you uh, you alluded to earlier because Wolves yeah. get the win against Man City, feeling confident, feels like maybe they can do a double giant killing and throw at least a slight bit more parity. I don't even know if we can say it's a, it's a title race at all, obviously, uh, with what Liverpool now at this point 13 points ahead with the game in hand. But there was a chance that maybe it would only have been 10. Uh, but Wolves not able to to get uh, any points in this one, much to their chagrin, and uh, maybe much to the credit or blame of VAR. It seems like this is going to be the topic of conversation once again, isn't it? Mm-hmm. VAR was the dominant discussion here. I, I, I mean, let, let's, let's look at this weekend as a whole. We had VAR narrowly mm-hmm. ruling out many goals. We had yep. the Pookie goal uh, at Spurs. We had uh, Burn uh, at Brighton. We had yep. uh, well, there was another one. Was it Zaha at Southampton? Was one that was was that a few days before? But it just seems that VAR is very mm. draconian. It doesn't lie what it tells you. It's just its application yep. it troubles me. And when you've got these lines where you can't you can't see with the human eye <laughs> who's more offside, that bothers me. And also, what bothers me is where, where these lines are being drawn. I've mentioned before about you know which frame is being picked and how the the, the accuracy that these cameras can provide, which frame in the motion is being picked. But also, if you notice, a lot of the um, lines are being drawn at the defender's foot, but then at the attacker's arm or yeah. armpit. 
Why is it not the defender's armpit as well? Because if it's if the, if the argument is that they can, you know, you're offside by any part of your body you can score with, then it should be you could be played onside by any part of your body you can save a goal with. So I don't see why it's the foot for one player. It just seems inconsistent to me. Am I am I wrong there? I mean, I, I think I take your point that like it, it's very confusing in the moment because you're just sort of seeing the lines being drawn. I honestly don't think they do a very good job, even though they color code them now near the end. I think it's hard to follow which line goes to which player and when and how they're doing it. And I think you're, you're right that then like sometimes it's the foot, sometimes it's the armpit. And I'm sure that has to do with like where they are and what the official there thinks is like the part of, part of the body that's furthest back or what have you. But it always looks very confusing. And then I think, as you said, like the moment of when the ball is leaving the foot, I think many, many times in this in this sequence uh, for Wolves, it looked like, well, the ball hasn't really left the foot yet. I'm not sure if that should have been given as offside. And I understand why VAR gives it that way because that's how they're seeing it. That's how they've been told to enforce it. But I do mm. think it, we're getting to the point, and I think we've talked about this before, but I'm happy to bring it up again. I don't really have an issue with VAR in this situation. I think the issue is with the way the, the offside rule exists currently because VAR is just doing what it's, what it's supposed to do. It's telling us if a person is offside, even if they're offside by a half an inch. or like I, th- I think I saw somebody tweeting that if he was a size 8 instead of a size 9, wouldn't have been offside, but <laughs> yeah. here we are. And, and I do think that maybe that's what we need to see changed. I don't really want to get into the should we still have VAR debate? That seems to be the way most people have gone at this point is should we be getting rid of it? And they have one person say yes and one person say no. What I would rather see is a change to that offside rule. Either there has to be clear daylight when the ball has been played. Like I want to see like a a blade of grass or something between the foot and the ball so we know that ball has been released. And then I wouldn't Mm -hmm. mind seeing uh, changes to maybe the daylight rule. Daryl is going to be rejoicing because we've debated this many times before. But I wouldn't mind (laughs) seeing something there just to make it a bit more advantageous to the attacker uh, because right now it certainly doesn't feel that way. I mean, I I get the arguments people who are pro-VAR saying, you know, get over it. This is it. It gives accurate, it gives you accurate information. But it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like it's in the spirit of the game when things like this happen. We have like four or five incidents where there's no discernible difference between the defender and the attacker. It just doesn't feel like it's in the spirit of yeah. why we watch this game and why we why we enjoy soccer. It just feels wrong. Mm-hmm. It just feels wrong, even though it might be right, Taylor. And I can't I can't enunciate that any better. But uh, nor, nor do I think you need to, to be honest, because I, I think like that is the correct take in my mind is that it's technically correct, but it's also really frustrating and feels incorrect. And so mm. right there, I think you have an issue that I don't think means you need to scrap it, but I think it needs more refining and a bit more clarity. And maybe just maybe the official should go look at the screen more than once in a season. That would be nice, wouldn't it? And it's it just a shame. It's a shame for Wolves in this one. They could have taken two points off of the eventual Premier League champions this uh, this season. Mm-hmm. And Neto found the Neto, but it was vetoed. <laughs> mm-hmm. How long have you been working on that one? That, I just thought of that while I was talking. Well done, honestly. sir. Well done, sir. Uh, yes, and in, and instead of him getting to celebrate his his first Premier League goal, uh, it gets called back. Liverpool uh, ultimately get the win, a one 0 win. And we should note uh, VAR assisted win as well. Initially, Liverpool's goal called back. Sadio Mane uh, didn't do anything wrong, but Adam Lallana was judged to have handled the ball. Replay shows he did not. It came off of his shoulder, so the uh, the the goal stands. And I think that's a correct usage of VAR, and I'm fine with that yeah. one. I think. 
my only frustration is that it continues the narrative of Liverpool, like, just barely scraping through and how lucky have they been. And I get frustrated in that moment where, like, it, this is, we're talking about a team that have drawn one game this season, lost none. They've dropped two points. Like, at a certain point, it may seem like luck, but I have a hard time believing that that run of form is anything other than a team performing to the highest possible caliber. Yeah, I think they're quite good. I think it's what we can conclude that. And, and Liverpool, Liverpool uh-huh. was trending on UK Twitter. It was a top trend yesterday. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of sort of negativity about that. But uh, you, we've seen several VAR decisions go against them this season as well. So I'm not, I'm not buying that narrative. I appreciate that you're not buying that narrative. I am buying your narrative that Liverpool will end up uh, winning the title this season. As I said, 13 points ahead with the game in hand. I don't see Man City uh, being able to close that gap, nor do I see Leicester, who are uh, actually closer, one point closer than Man City at this point. So I, I do think, barring a massive downturn in former like Jurgen Klopp leaving in the middle of the season to go take over some other job, which I, again, don't think is going to happen, I do think it will be Liverpool on top. But I also think that we'll continue to see these controversies, and I think they will be exacerbated or blown up all more when they happen against Liverpool or to teams playing Liverpool, just because I think people do want a title race. People do want things to be a little bit closer, and I do think that's part of the reason why it was this Liverpool one. As you said, there's three other games which had questionable VAR choices or decisions made, but I think we're going to focus, as are most people, on this Liverpool game because if Liverpool had dropped those points, that gap is just a little bit tight- tighter, and maybe that you can build, like talk yourself into a narrative of, oh, there is going to be a title race when it seems very unlikely that there will be I don't think there will be and no. I think the only reason there would have been this season is if Liverpool suffer some some, some big injuries yeah. Badger Van Dijk one of the fullbacks both mm. the fullbacks goes out that's when they would have problems but even that it seems a bit insurmountable at the moment doesn't it and when you look at the lead that Liverpool had last season what did they have 11 points over City at some point and which which they they, they like 10 they, at this point or something like that yeah right so they petered that away but you can't see this Man City side in the form they're in, in the mentality right. they've got right now, it just doesn't feel like they have the metal to to catch up right now. And that's kind of sad. Yeah, the, the shoe was very much on the other foot last season where it felt like Liverpool had maybe punched above their weight and there were kind of vulnerabilities that had been disguised. Whereas Man City, it felt like, OK, they're kind of getting into form now. They figured some things out. We expect them to kick into high gear. And if anything, I would expect Liverpool to continue to be in high gear and Man City to continue to falter. Maybe they'll make some uh, signings in January. We'll talk a little bit about potential moves and moves that have already happened a bit mm. later in the show. Uh, but right now, let's uh, let's maybe talk about some other Premier League action that has taken place. We've talked uh, what Wolves City. We've talked Liverpool Wolves. Let's talk Arsenal Chelsea, shall we? Arsenal Chelsea, indeed. Yes, yeah, so the London Derby finishing two mm-hmm. one to Chelsea on this occasion. It's not. I mean, Arsenal looked pretty good in this one. I think they they still look better than they have done in recent weeks, but still. I mean, uh, let's say they, they they look like they have more ideas. They looked a bit more resilient, perhaps. Yes, yes, still, I, I, you know, I would agree with that entirely. That there was a lot more fight, a lot more spirit, a lot more like the ball's rolling out of bounds. I'm going to try to sprint 20 yards to keep it in. Just a little bit more energy than I think we've seen of late from Arsenal. But still completely wide open at the back awesome quite man. a lot of the time, <laughs> and still struggling to string a few passes together. So yeah. there's, I enjoyed there's, there's, there's a dichotomy going on there, basically. I enjoyed David Luiz coming out after the game and saying, like, oh, Mikel Arteta, like, I'm so blessed to have played for so many amazing managers, and he's definitely going to be one too, and he's so smart and funny and charming. And it was just like, <laughs> I see what you're doing here, David Luiz. I see what you're doing. You're playing some games. Because this really was, I think Arsenal fans should be 
happier. Obviously not happy whenever whenever you lose and lose the way Arsenal did. But I think there was definitely there were definitely signs, as you've said, that things probably will turn around under under Mikel Arteta. He will not just be some flop who doesn't know what he's doing. At least I don't think he will be. But I also think it was sort of a result that maybe has Arsenal fans like should have them clamoring all the more for Arsenal to do some business in January because I don't. I don't think that like Leno is a problem by any stretch of the imagination, though I do want to say thumbs down to him for whatever happened on that goal. And I think what happened, I don't want to blame David Luiz, but I think David Luiz is in a position where when Leno comes out, he's he's jumping in to meet that ball with his left hand. Uh, and instead, because of where David Luiz is, I think Leno realizes he's not going to be able to get that left hand up in time. So instead, he tries to go with the right hand, which is just a different angle. He's not going to be able to get the ball as cleanly. And in this case, isn't going to be able to get the ball at all. But you still see that sort of... Like, lack of ability to deal with crosses, the uncertainty from Leno, but the center backs not being in the right spot. And I think you saw a lot of issues with the Arsenal defense here that maybe solidified all the more that they need to do some business in January to shore up the defense. Yeah, do you think maybe a a center back needs to come in then? Because it it seems interesting that a lot of the links have been with players like Wilford and Didi, sort of, you know, those screening kind Mm. of defensive midfielders. Whereas I, I don't know. I don't feel like that's a, a position that Arsenal desperately need to feel right now. It does feel more like a centre back with you know with Callum James having issues again w- would be pretty good. Um, yeah, no, I yeah, think just, I think just, that's right. I think that's right because like, and you have Torreira back there who I think did a good job. I think they want to try to find somebody who can maybe partner him if Shaka doesn't end up working out if he's allowed to leave in January. Oh, he was maybe... ill by the way. He was ill in inverted uh, air quotes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he couldn't be there. He was ill. He don't was let ill. anyone tell you he wasn't ill because he was ill. He was he was the most ill, is what I've heard. I <laughs> he think was that's the, the official diagnosis. <laughs> yeah. So like, and I think uh, you had what Mustafi getting turned fairly easily by Tammy Abraham for uh, the eventual winner. You had uh, I think it was Saka who couldn't get back in time, like uh, to deal with the counterattack that led to the goal. You saw him kind of jogging, and then he's unable mm. to make a play. He kind of I can't tell if he was feigning or actually had pulled something, but as soon as the ball went in, you saw him kind of quickly grab his hamstring. Like, oh, that was the problem. Not my fault. I had an injury. Not my fault. <laughs> and there was just. For all of the progress I think there was in this game for Arsenal and why Arsenal fans, again, should be a bit more optimistic, you still saw some of that frailty that I think Arteta will have to work to stamp out, but maybe also work to bring in some players to help stamp out. Yeah, because it was some classic Mustafi, that second Chelsea yes, goal, wasn't it? Was. it? Mm-hmm. Let, let Tammy Abraham collect the ball and run downfield with it and then have no idea where he's positioned when he is shaping <laughs> up the score. It's like, it wasn't even... Isn't it like a basic thing to... Be aware of where the striker is in the I box. think so. I think that's a basic thing, yes, especially <laughs> if you're a defender. I think you should probably be mindful of, of those things, uh, yeah, which, yeah, I, I think, again, maybe is why Arsenal should be exploring the transfer market. I think they won't be the only ones uh, looking for centre-backs. Man City might be in there, too. Uh, Tottenham as well, but we can get to that in a moment because, first, I want to give a little bit of credit to Chelsea and a lot of bit of credit to Frank Lampard. Thumbs up mm. to him for making some smart adjustments uh, and then for taking the halftime approach he did. I want to start with those adjustments based Basically, I think he recognizes fairly quickly that uh, their setup was not working. They went with a back three and then the kind of two wide and higher wing backs. But the way Arsenal came after Chelsea really limited their ability to play out of the back. And they struggled as a result. And so bringing off Emerson and, and kind of owning the fact that it was his mistake, I think he tried to downplay it a little bit. But I think making that change in the first half and uh, bringing on Jorginho, recognizing that things were not going their way, Jorginho ultimately scoring the winner. I think, you know, we can talk about the uh, the drama there and should he have been on the field or not. But I think you still have to give credit to Frank Lampard for some of those tactical adjustments. And then mm. I want to talk about his halftime approach as well. Did, did you see this, Ryan? 
got a bit got a bit shirty in the tunnel, didn't it? It, it did. It did indeed. Yes. Apparently, uh, Frank Lampard let his players basically yell at each other uh, at halftime. He said, uh, "I said my piece, and I was pretty firm because you can't just come here and have nothing about you and think you're going to get anything." I'm assuming that meant he can't just go in there and be like, "Hey guys, let's do better." It was, "Can we show something here, lads? Because we have to. We're Chelsea, and we can't just roll up and not feel like the three thousand fans who have traveled across London to watch the game." Blah 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 blah. Uh, but then the key point was that essentially he allowed the, the players to start talking, to start kind of trying to figure things out on their own, which uh, I believe led to literal and figurative finger pointing. Uh, there was some arguing in the tunnel, as you said, between. Uh, uh, Fikayo Tomori and Kurtzuma. Uh, mm. And it seems like maybe Chelsea got a little bit of a response from that, came out and had a bit more fight, had a bit more steel to them. D- do you give any credit to Frank Lampard for that approach? W- would you respond to that or would you rather have the coach just tell you what to do and get back out there? Well, I think I think he deserves massive credit because it seems man management is one of his biggest strengths and we've mm-hmm. seen that before in this season. And just letting letting the players blow steam and have it out seems to have been a good approach. He knows these players better than we do and he's he's let that happen. I mean, I look at I was when I was trying to watch this game, my two children were fighting upstairs. I, I thought, I'll carry on watching this game and let them have it out, blow off some steam and then, you know, it all got resolved. It was all fine. What kind of fight are we talking about here? Oh, it was over like a a bar- Barbie's airplane, which was oh, one yeah. of the Christmas gifts. It's a very hot <laughs> gift this uh, this Christmas, in case you didn't know. Barbie's um, airplane, huh? Yeah, yeah. She's the, the, when you've got the dream house and when you've got the car, the next natural step is the airplane, in case you didn't realize. That's slightly besides <laughs> the point. My point being, sometimes it's best to let <laughs> quarreling parties have it out. And mm-hmm. I, I also would give a thumbs up to Lampard for, for, you know, this is a wildly inconsistent team. This is a team mm-hmm. that... They won two London derbies away, and that was sandwiched between a, a bizarre loss to Southampton. And yet he can still make the adjustments he needs to make in these games. He can still raise, have this team raise their game in big London derbies. And, you know, he, this is a game where he can bring in Tarek Lamptey, uh, a kid into the team. Lamptey and Lamptey together at last, by the way. Um, <laughs> and, and have him settle in. That not, that not even be an issue mm-hmm. at all. The way that he can bring young talent into this team is fantastic. And I also, I, I, I love the way he talks in post-match interviews. He doesn't do the Arsene Wenger, I didn't see it. Yeah. Uh, you know, doesn't talk in vagaries or pleasantries. Vagaries, I think I made up a word. Vagueness or pleasantries. He's very honest. When he was When he was asked about... Uh, Jorginho, whether he should have been on on the field for his goal, he was like, "Yeah, maybe it was a foul." You know, he he talks like he talks like one of us. He talks yep. like one of us, Taylor. He's honest, and I really appreciate his approach. And I think he's I, I, I'm I'm a big fan of his so far. I wasn't sure that he was going to get the job done when he came in, but I'm I'm impressed with him so far for sure. Oh, I'll straight up say I did not think he was going to be as successful as he has been. For, oh, yeah. for Chelsea to be where they are in the table to look as strong as they have this season, especially with that transfer embargo they had this summer, uh, I think it's a credit to him. And I think you're absolutely right that he's not pretending to be something he isn't he's not maybe that comes with time but right now mm-hmm. he's not trying to get into those sort of like mind games and flipping the script and changing the t- like point of conversation yeah i think it's to his credit that he was like yeah you know we might have gotten lucky a little bit with the Jorginho there I'm, I'm i'm paraphrasing a little bit um but i think he kind of owns that one and doesn't say the like oh well there's other controversial topics that we should be talking about he doesn't sort of what about in that situation um i think lampard said i think it certainly could have been a second yellow we might have struck a bit of luck with that one so i guess he did say we got lucky what, Ryan yeah. where, where are you on the way this one was officiated having earlier said uh, that quarreling parties uh, should be allowed to have it out <laughs> do you feel like maybe that was the officiating perspective here is like let's just let Genduzzi and Jorginho foul people and uh, we'll just keep it keep it going as it has been yeah, it seemed that way. Both both uh, Genduzzi and Giorgio probably lucky to have not got mm-hmm. second yellows in this game for sure. But it did seem like the referee was also blowing up for a lot of 
less <laughs> some more incidental contact Red? elsewhere on the field. It seemed yeah. a little bit inconsistent, I would say. It was like consistent in the minor calls being given, but then inconsistent in the lack of cards for what seemed to be major infractions. Uh, it yeah. was it, it was a bit odd, and I know Arsenal fans are not going to love that we're saying maybe both players could have been sent off. I think Genduzi pulling down Tammy Abraham in the box as the ball is coming in. That we've seen that many times be given, if not as a penalty, then as a yellow card. So I think Ganduzi fortunate there. Jorginho, mm. for his part, definitely uh, for basically two two professional fouls, aggressive professional fouls at that. Yeah. I think could have uh, seen his his marching orders as well. Was not. So I understand why Arsenal fans are going to feel frustrated. But I also think it sort of benefits them to not blame the the officiating in this one, but to look at the progress that was made, but also the kind of lingering vulnerabilities. I know they are very well aware of those, being Arsenal fans, but I think to sort of look just at the referee and those decisions sort of lets off some areas of concern that need to be dealt with. I understand Arsenal fans' frustration is an evergreen statement that you just yes. made there. <laughs> All right. Well, then let's talk about, uh, I guess, frustration with Jose Mourinho seeming to be an evergreen thing. Uh, we have Norwich 2, Tottenham 2. There was more uh, VAR drama in this one. We can talk about that. Uh, and then we can also talk a little bit about how, con- con- contrary to like what Lampard did, where he made some changes and then explained to them, and I think talked to Emerson about how it's not you, it's me, uh, sort of hear Mourinho after this game. It seemed to very much switch that one around and say, it's not me, it's you all. <laughs> Mourinho's the anti-Lampard, isn't he? I think that's what we've established today. Probably. I, I think. <laughs> I think. I don't know if he would love that, but uh, a little bit in that he's definitely a bit more reliant on the mind games than the uh, yeah. kind of direct statements about what he saw, uh, unless it benefits him personally to be uh, direct in his assessment of his players. Uh, but here he he talked a bit about how, like, what with the ball when we were attacking, we looked very very good. When we had the ball, when we were, or when we didn't have the ball and we're defending, it was a very different sort of game. Um, he takes off Juan Foyth and Jan Vertonghen at halftime. He uh, made some changes to his formation before halftime, uh, and and it did feel like it was sort of Mourinho also starting to get frustrated with the state of his squad, the quality he has, and sort of the lack of focus as well, specifically Juan Foyth for uh, the opener from Norwich, where he just kind of tries to lazily dribble out of the back, gets robbed, (laughs) and then sort of throws a fit about getting robbed as opposed to working his socks off to get back in and try to make a play. Uh, I I can understand Mourinho's frustration a bit there. It was a little David Lewis style adventure that one. It really was, on, wasn't it? It was, that it was really was. fun to see. But then it turned into a six on three press with, a, yeah, with basically it, it was bizarre. You saw Norwich coming. They had like when Vranich went through, he had he, he had two players overlapping on his left open. I think he had two on his right. It was he was spoiled for choice. Mm-hmm. Went it alone and, uh, and and got the goal there. But interesting of Mourinho. It looked like he was starting with the back three, although not a million miles from what he's been doing generally with Serge Aurier pumping forward and um, swiftly abandoned that defensive yeah. plan with Vertonghen and Voigt coming off, which is a big move, isn't it? That's a big move to make it really, Especially with Vertonghen, because Vertonghen was one of those players under Pochettino at the beginning of the season who very clearly wanted a move, was was happy to sort of uh, like move on from Tottenham, bring in some money for them. Then that move doesn't happen, S- similar to Christian Eriksen, similar to Toby Alderweireld, uh, Danny Rose as well. And, and I think it like, kind of lingered, then Jose Mourinho comes in, and there was maybe an expectation of, okay, now... We're going to see Jan Vertonghen kind of kick into the next gear because he's got a new manager he wants to impress. And to see him substituted at halftime alongside Foyth, it, it was a uh, stark reminder of uh, how things have gone for him this season. 
Mm, definitely. And can I say, by the way, I did I did actually predict uh, that this would be a Norwich win. Really? Um, yeah, well, obviously Norwich didn't come into this one very well. Bottom of the table they were. Uh, they'd lost their last two games to Spurs by a 3-0 scoreline. But I just saw this as an opportunity. You know, Norwich, I think I've said this on this podcast before. They're, they're really good against games, against the big six mm-hmm. in those big TV slots. They beat Manchester City. They drew with Arsenal. They also got a draw against Leicester, didn't they? That wasn't a big TV slot. But it seems their sort of gung-ho style is really suited to those expansive big six teams. And I just thought that the way that Tottenham are so disjointed at the moment, where their defence is pretty leaky, this was ripe for the taking. And I predicted a 2-1 win for Norwich in my in my betting column last week. And when it was 2-1, I was pretty happy happy with myself but but uh it's uh, let, how about that that the, the VAR decision mm-hmm. here against against Timu Puki that that was that just felt like a, a a poor application of it because a lovely long ball comes over from 20 yards away for, 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 for Puki to latch onto and at that point Alderweireld is like what sorry when when the ball is about 10 yards 15 mm-hmm. yards away from landing with Puki Alderweireld is about a yard ahead of him. Mm-hmm. There's no offside advantage anymore. There's no advantage that Pookie's playing there because he's kind of dropped back a little bit, or Idavira just dropped back a little yeah. bit, I should say. And I just found that very disappointing. I think Norwich, to, to go to my original point, deserved a bit more than a draw from this game. Right, because it, it's a it's a confusing ball. It's sort of like driven and lofted and has some curve to it, which I think throws off Alderweireld. And it's mm. why I kept watching that being like, why is he not making a play on the ball or staying with Puki? Uh, and I think it's just maybe the con- the confusing arc of the ball, but Puki able to control it very well, finishes very well. It seems like, yeah. oh, this is definitely going to be Norwich's game. Mourinho's going to freak out. Then it's called back because, once again, we had, what, the armpit offside? And it goes back to my earlier point of... Does he really gain that much of an advantage? And as you said, if Vertonghen is then able to get well ahead of him, it doesn't feel like it's sort of a foot race and that little bit extra is what made the difference. It feels like, once again, we have this rule that is very, very, very specific now and we have cameras and science that can sort of enforce that specificity. And as a result, we have an offside for Puki that I don't – like, again, technically was correct but feels incorrect. And that's where I really am coming around to the idea of maybe we need to, now that we have this technology, in the game. I don't think we should move away from it. I think it would be a mistake to just do away with VAR immediately and go back to yelling at referees because that's exactly what would happen. I think it makes more sense to sort of fine-tune the rules to accommodate the changes in technology. Yeah, doing away with VAR at this point would be the Premier League equivalent of taking two defenders off at half time. You yeah, why would you do that? that? You don't <laughs> want to do that. Uh, but I guess it would get them a draw, which is maybe favourable. So maybe they will do that. Who knows? There we go. Yeah. Also, can we say on the Tottenham side of things, Undumbe- like, the spine looked pretty good in this one. Mm-hmm. Celso Undombele had good games. Ericsson, uncharacteristically good game from him here, wasn't it? A brilliant free kick. But also couldn't beat the first man at a corner. Yeah. That's- <laughs> which is... Yeah, which is is how the game ends. And it is worth noting, like, Tottenham do like to go for that near post. They have that drawn up as one of their set pieces. But, yeah, to not clear the first man, I think representative of the individual mistakes you had in this game, uh, no more so than Serge Aurier, for the uh, the what go-ahead goal for Norwich. It's an own goal from Serge Aurier. And it would be harsh to say, like, it's entirely his fault because it's a deflection. He's trying to get back into, into position, doesn't really see it coming, and it's kind of flukes into the net. But then you go back and watch, and it's Serge Aurier being a good couple yards deeper than the rest of the back line that allows the Norwich attack continue that doesn't catch anybody offside then he ends up kind of scramble again and then he ends up scoring the own goal and it goes back to that point of a Serge Aurier he can have an amazing 80 minutes or 85 minutes but there's always that feeling that at some point in that game he's going to do something 
very, very confusing and also playing a part in Norwich's first goal with some questionable decision-making. I think you see the frustration of Mourinho. You understand where that's coming from. And that's another squad that I expect will be spending some funds in January and then certainly this coming summer. Yeah, might need a little uh, right-back reinforcement there at Tottenham Hotspur, I think. But let's give credit to Puka. He scored there without even scoring. I mean, that's the goal. That's the dream. That's what you want to go for. Well done, Timu Puki. Uh, and then my, my, my question for you, Ryan, if you don't mind, uh, was on. we've got uh, Chelsea at this point, fourth place, Man City ahead of them. So uh, Man City 41 in third place, Chelsea 35 points in fourth place. Then it's Man United 31, Tottenham 30, Wolves 30, Sheffield United 29. Um, how do you sort of see this going right now? We're 20 games in, unless you're Liverpool and it's 19, uh, West Ham the same. Um, do you think that we could see Wolves or Sheffield challenging for the European places? Do you think it'll be... Uh, Chelsea holding on do you kind of think the top four stays as it is Uh, do you see any sort of changes here what do you see in in the top four top six race I am inclined to feel that the top four kind of stays as it is I think that fourth place is obviously the, the one that's most up for grabs Manchester United, obviously, they really need Champions League this season, right? They really got, I think they're going to have to do some spending themselves in this, mm-hmm. perhaps you know, strengthen that midfield a little bit, because if they don't, then your Pogba's and your big players are going to start thinking, hang on, this isn't a Champions League team anymore. So I'd be concerned for them. Tottenham, I think, is too inconsistent to consider them getting top four this season. The big conversation, and perhaps one we should have, is about Wolves. Yeah, You know, they're, they're only a few points off, off the top four as well. They're looking fantastic at the moment. We've seen them... Put, put into very good performances um, over this festive period. But I worry about them in terms of them getting fatigued and not having a big enough squad to cope with going another 18 games at this pace and having the Europa League as well. In February, yeah. the Europa League uh, campaign starts again. So I, I worry that that's going to uh, take away some of their their momentum. So I'm, I, I yeah. think that w- as much as I'd like to see Wolves pushing on the top four, I don't think it's quite going to happen this season. And perhaps I'd offer a similar sentiment to Sheffield United as well. Yeah, and and I think that that's a smart and realistic take, especially for Wolves, because we've seen teams sort of see that maybe that top four is theoretically possible and they kind of give up other competitions, they give up other pursuits to wholly focus on the Premier League. And if one or two things go wrong, you've given up on those other competitions. Maybe you don't end up picking up those points. You finish seventh or eighth, and now you sort of abandon other pursuits in order to finish where you might have finished anyway. And I yeah. think if you if you asked Wolves fans, if you asked Daryl at the beginning of the season, hey, you're going to be seventh, you're going to be top seven at, at Christmas or before the new year. You're going to be, uh, you're going to have gotten six points against Man City. You're going to still be alive <laughs> in the knockout round of the Europa League. I think they would be ecstatic. I think most Wolves fans would be ecstatic, and I think they'd be really excited to be back in that same situation next season. And I think if you strengthen over the summer, you continue to do what you've been doing, you back Nuno, the game plan continues, then I think next year, especially if other teams remain weak, which I think some of them will, uh, I do think that there are opportunities there to make that top six, top five, top four, potentially. But I agree with you right now, I think it would be a mistake to overly prioritize getting top four. For sure. i got two questions for you. Do I you hopefully think have answers. I hope. Well, maybe you don't. I do think. Uh, do, do you think rather that Manchester United are going to breach into the top four uh, by the end of this campaign? My second question is a separate one. Arsenal. Where do you think mm-hmm. they're going to finish? Oh, 
kind of forgot about Arsenal. So currently in 12th, I have the table in front of me. That's just not hmm. off the top of my head. Uh, 24 points. I would expect them, because that seems like a lot when you say they're in 12th. Then you realize it's only six points behind uh, Tottenham, uh, seven points behind Man United. Uh, I, I would expect them to finish top half. I don't know how much progress they're going to make. But I think to your to a point you've made uh, already this show, uh, I don't want to say to your earlier point, because I think I've said that like four times already. Uh, but basically, <laughs> I think we have sort of Chelsea being inconsistent at times, Man City being inconsistent at times, United certainly that, Spurs certainly that as well. And so I think it's about kind of who is the most consistent or the least inconsistent for the run-in. And I do think Chelsea uh, have this sort of uh, belief in what they've already accomplished. Maybe they strengthen a little bit, but I think Frank Lampard has shown that he'll be able to get them across that finish line, barring some Mm -hmm. sort of serious downturn in form. I think the same goes for Man City. So Looking at United, I don't know if I have that same level of confidence. Some of my friends who are United fans do, but I don't feel like like one win against Burnley uh, and another win against Newcastle, like that's great that they're being able to play against teams that are theoretically more compact, more defensive, but they've still been so erratic in some of these competitions and going from great performance against, performances against bigger teams to very bad performances against very bad teams. I don't know where they are right now, and so I wouldn't be surprised if they won five in a row, and I wouldn't be surprised. I would be a little surprised if that happened. But I also wouldn't be surprised if they got like three points out of the next five games. So I think it will be hard for them to get top four. My guess would be that they will look very hard at the Europa League, winning that one as a way to kind of backdoor their way into the Champions League. Well, in those next five games, we've got Arsenal coming up, got uh, Liverpool in a few oh weeks' time. Manchester City, that's a League Cup, to be fair. But yeah. there's, some, there's, some, there's some tough times ahead for Manchester United. Do you think, if, yeah. if the, uh, where would you go if you had some money to spend in the transfer market? It is, it is those players behind that front three, isn't it, that need a bit more oomph? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, like, I, I haven't uh, hated Lindelof Maguire. I think that's been okay. I think when they've been able to have uh, Juan Basaka, that's been a lockdown one. Luke Shaw has increased his performance. I wouldn't mind, as a result, seeing some strengthening in the midfield. And then I have no idea what to expect from Paul Pogba. Uh, the tweet this weekend about him not even being in the squad was that he had played so many minutes and they needed to rest him because of fixture congestion. He had played, I believe, a combined 60 minutes in the two games previous <laughs> after missing like several months. So I understand they want to bring him back in slowly, but that justification didn't really make sense as to why he wouldn't even be in the squad. Uh, yeah. And I think that the team being so much better with him in there as a kind of free-floating midfielder, as potentially that number 10, I think if they can get him back in there and he's playing really well, then I don't know if they need to strengthen. But if they can't, and if they don't or if he doesn't then that would be the other area so maybe like another quality in possession but can make some plays defensive midfielder and then maybe a creative midfielder or a goal scorer outright uh wouldn't be the worst thing either mm, maybe a maybe a Jaden sancho maybe someone like that maybe a, a jack Grealish or a or, or a Jimmy Madison. What do you think? I, I would I would enjoy uh, all three of those players. Jaden Sancho, I'm going to assume, slightly expensive. I think the rumors I saw were certainly in excess of 100 million euros. Since when has that uh, stopped you? <laughs> also a very good point. I guess other than with uh, with uh, Erling Holland, maybe. We'll talk about him in a sec. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I think Sancho would certainly be a great investment, as would Grealish, as would James Madison uh, very much. I don't know if Leicester currently second are going to part with him. And if they do, I think it will be for a decent sum of money. So maybe that's one for the summer. Uh, but we'll keep our eye on it. We'll keep our eye on everything that's happening uh, as sort of managers part ways with their clubs. New managers are brought in. Uh, new players are brought in in the January window. And we should do that right now. 
now by talking a little West Ham uh, because David Moyes is back. Ryan Bailey, do you feel secure knowing that David Moyes is back in the Premier League? Do, 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 do. Hello, darkness, my old friend. <laughs> is that the reaction of West Ham fans today? I just love the, the announcement tweet where he's lo- looking up as if he's got, you know, he's at the doorstep and he's got something terrible to tell you. <laughs> oh. And that message, that terrible message is, I'm back once again. I'm back. Because this oh, is wow. worth worth remembering uh, David Moyes, who left West Ham in May of 2018 after he saved them from relegation. He had the kind of six month appointment uh, with the task of avoid relegation. And then we'll see. He did that. And then the sort of we'll see was, yeah, not so much. This isn't really where we want to go. And Instead, he leaves. In comes Manuel Pellegrini. Manuel Pellegrini has now left or been asked to leave or just been told to leave. Uh, and David Moyes <laughs> is back. So maybe the the man who should have gotten the job originally, uh, but I think a lot of fans were okay that he did not get the job originally, has now gotten the job. And I guess West Ham fans are going to be okay with it. West Ham are a curious club. When you think about when they left Upton Park uh, and, you know, they, they beat Man United in that last game there. It was all celebration, Look, all mm-hmm. looking ahead to the future. You know, with Slaven Bilic, we're gonna we're gonna push on the top six here. We're gonna, you know, we could be a Champions League team. There was all that talk of them being the next big thing, and they're moving to their new stadium. Everything is going to be wonderful. Hasn't quite panned out like that, has it? To be fair, no, and then it's you not. just, but, but this is just the epitome of a lack of ambition. Mm-hmm. Going back to the well, the David Moyes well once again. What does that tell you about what this club thinks and what it thinks of itself? The fact that they think the solution to getting out of a relegation pickle is to do the thing they did last time. It, it, tells, me, it tells me that there's a sort of half-and-half half mindset. The fire truck uh, driving through the city of Richmond agrees, I think, that things are not great <laughs> at West Ham. But it's this strange, like, okay, we're going to go Slavon Bilic. We're going to try something interesting because that Croatia team were so good. Okay, that didn't work. Never mind. We want David Moyes. David Moyes is going to be practical and get us out of relegation. We'll be fine. Okay, but now we want to take a gamble. We want to bring in a former Man City manager, a former Malaga manager. We want to see what he can do. We're going to try exciting things. Oh, no, that didn't work. Let's bring back, like, Pragmatist again. And it feels like for every kind of step into... We're going to try to elevate our status, elevate the way we play. There is then a panic and a return to uh, the kind of more standard, we're going to fight our way through, we're going to get the results we need to get, and we're going to be uh, hopefully comfortably mid-table by the end of the season. It, it feels like a strange duality that must be incredibly frustrating for West Ham fans. Definitely, yeah. And it's a, a regression to the mean almost, isn't it? It's very bizarre. and I don't know. I feel like Moyes might have inherited a better squad than he did last time around. But That's this possible. Is a, this is a manager who hasn't had any work since he was fired by West That Ham. is also the case. <laughs> what does that tell you? Oh uh, it tells me that it's going to be an interesting time for West Ham fans, and it's going to be an interesting uh, time for many Premier League clubs. As I said earlier, we've got games uh, this midweek. Then we've mm. got games this coming weekend. So Ryan and I will be back uh, next Monday for some uh, more weekend review. Uh, but before we get to that, we have a couple more things to talk about. Let's move away from the Premier League uh, very briefly to talk about Liga Mekis, uh, the, play- the league we always talk about, Ryan. We talk about it every week. But let's go ahead and talk about it this week as well. Uh, we had the Apertura final uh america v monterey monterey winning the first leg at home uh two to one america win the second leg at home two to one so we go to extra time we go to penalties and in the end it's monterey getting the penalty shootout victory they are your your uh, mexico champions i believe they're also your concaf champions league champions i might have that wrong either way they will be going into the campeones cup and either way they're very very good they are indeed, aren't they? And I, I know, as you say, we do talk about Liga Mekis all the time, but we're, we're doing uh, giving the listeners the courtesy of recording it this yeah. week, so that's good. But oh, yeah, we this... do always do that like twenty minutes after the show is it done. We talk Liga Mekis. We should probably right. record that from now on. 
Well, let's let's resolve to do that going forward. But right. I think this was a great advertisement for the league, wasn't it? These two it these two was. matches in particular, very dramatic stuff going on here. Uh, lots of storylines happening. And by the way, did you see that there was? A, I saw a tweet earlier saying just there was one um, sort of dodgy stream yes. where the where the picture was tilted that had over one hundred and ten thousand people watching it at one yep. point, which is a lot more than a lot of MLS games it have is. been getting in the US. So it's interesting it to put it in that perspective, is it not? But uh, I, I mean, I thought- yeah, it, it, it speaks to the number of people who want to watch quality soccer in a quality like playoff format. Uh, yes, I, I think I think it's it's pretty telling. I think that was John Arnold who was tweeting that one. I could be wrong, right. but John is always very good for Liga Mekis in Central American soccer and many other things as well. He is indeed. He's indeed. This, this game was very good. I thought uh, um, Ochoa had some. He was great in both legs. Yes, wasn't he, was. he has pulled off some really important saves uh, that kept his side in it. And Mont- Monterey just looked great, didn't they? And I think there was a lot of. I will say there was a lot of bad defending. Yeah. In, this, in this game, though. Yeah, I it, think, it did I, seem like there was a lot of uh, Arsenal style. <laughs> Come on down, boys. Yes, yes. And I think you can't even blame like it so much on the altitude and on playing in the Azteca. Daryl asked about that, about like how much of an advantage was that for America. Mm. And the consensus was somewhat of an advantage, not one that necessarily people complain about, but it's a thing teams definitely have to prepare for. And yet in this game, uh, America go 2-0 up inside the first half. Uh, Funes Mori scores the all-important goal for Monterey that then uh, levels it on aggregate. As he but does. that goal especially, it felt a bit more like, yeah, you saw the America players sort of feeling the fatigue feeling the moment making some questionable decisions and that ends and then being punished by having to then play another uh round of extra time and then some penalties as well yeah and that was a, a much easier finish for funus mori than the first finish which made it 2-1 in the first yeah. leg of course but it's sort of yeah some pretty bored defending and yeah the uh, george sanchez the defender missing missing the ball completely and funus mori under under no pressure to put it in there and and yeah, there's a lot of storylines going on here with Monterey's coach, Antonio Mohamed, who I had to say looks a bit like a provincial magician, the way he dresses. I, I do enjoy that very much. But um, <laughs> the way he was crying at the end, there was, there was a bit of a backstory behind that, which I was reading in John, Arnt- uh, John Arnold's uh, goal um, feature mm-hmm. on this one. His son, who uh, was killed in a car crash during the um, 2006 World Cup, he promised to his son that he would return to Monterey, where he was a player, and um, one day win the title. And he did that. And he was very, very emotional at the end of the uh, penalty shootout, which Monterey won 4-2. He was very... It looks inconsolable, and that was just, that was that was quite nice to see. Yeah, I, I thought there was um, a yeah. very very emotional time. It was. It was indeed, and I, and I enjoyed that as well because you had uh, Miguel Herrera on the other side for Club America, and you could sort of see he didn't have the full on like meltdown epic like displays of energy that make him into a meme and a cartoon character, but it was still a very animated Miguel Herrera. And then mm. you flip it around to the other side, and you just there wasn't that same level from Muhammad of like crazy on the signs. It was a lot of like, okay, let's calm it down, let's be smart, and I think that probably is reflective of where he was emotionally and sort of his yeah. anxiety as the game moved on. But then I think yeah, to your point, you see the the kind of release of that after Monterey get the win after they win the penalty shootout and it made it that much more of a, a poignant moment for sure it I mean I stayed up to watch the celebrations I don't usually do that and this was what at like 12 30 in the morning at this point uh, but it was nice to see him sort of get that kind of uh, f- full circle conclusion finality closure whatever you want to call it but uh, well done to Mohammed well done to Monterey for uh, the win yeah, for their fifth title. Well done for them to for fielding uh, Vincent Janssen. Who yep. knew he was still a thing? That's what I'm I was sure he was going to miss. I was sure because <laughs> he took the first penalty uh, yeah. for Monterey. He scores it. I, I thought he was going to miss for sure. Then 
for a brief moment, it came down to if uh, 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 Giovanni De Santos steps up, if he missed his penalty, that would have meant Monterrey won right there. Instead, he buried it top corner. Probably the best penalty of the shootout, but it felt for all the world like, okay, it's going to be Vincent Janssen. He's going to come in. He's going to miss it. Monterrey will lose, and it will be Janssen's fault because that's sort of the way it seems like it's gone. Instead, he scores. He does well as a substitute, and Gio De Santos buries his penalty. So it sort of avoided the narrative of one big player making this mistake or being the headline, and instead yeah. just some well taken penalties all of them to the left side from Monterey so I feel like they kind of picked their spot decided this is where we're going to aim every single one uh Ochoa Memo Ochoa the goalkeeper for America made uh one save in the I think the second take but wasn't able to yeah it was a great save and they saved to keep it two to one near the end of regulation where he just pushes a shot over the bar that was incredible as well it felt like he was going to kind of get the reward for it instead he does not but he definitely deserved it for an outstanding goalkeeper performance yeah, definitely. What do you think about the the, the format, by the way? Um, Monterey finished eighth in, in, in this stage of Liga MX. Uh, they were four points behind America, yet they still get the title here. Mm. Cosora starts in 11 days. These yeah. two teams play again in early February. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, really strange that they start right back up. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's the nature of the playoffs, and it's why some people love the playoffs and some people hate the playoffs, because a team that wasn't near the top of the table or didn't finish first in the season can find a way to win. It's the same thing that happens in MLS playoffs all the time. It's why I yeah. think we had a third versus a fourth uh, this time around. Uh, and, I, and I think it can be frustrating but also it's kind of why you have the playoffs it's the point of them that anybody can win once you make it in it's just a matter of making it in uh but it is definitely a little strange to have a team that far down end up with the title my favorite thing about mexican soccer is the relegation process though where you you need a you need a degree in mathematics to work out who's going down yes or uh, a degree in underworld economics one or the other (laughs) because there's definitely some some shady things that happen there when it comes to avoiding relegation Uh, there have already been some moves in Mexico I believe uh, Leandro Gonzalez Perez the Atlanta center back is going to be moving to Club Tijuana there will be probably many other moves from uh, MLS and Liga Mekis this coming month uh, especially since uh, Major League Soccer remains in its offseason but for Europe uh, we don't have the window open we do have more moves getting announced Uh, Erling Holland will be moving to Dortmund had many many suitors they all kind of fell off and eventually it was Dortmund who won that race I think they did at least because they get this player they've needed a striker Paco Alcazar has been good but inconsistent again so bringing in a player who is kind of a proven entity uh, in uh, at least the Austrian Bundesliga but also in the Champions League as we've talked about previously I think it's a great move for them but I'm always sort of wary of deals whenever Mino Raiola is involved and it seems like that is sort of justified because he getting a fee out of this one uh holland's father is reportedly getting a fee there's going to be a release clause there's going to be lots of other clauses in there it seems like dortmund are sort of banking on look we'll take this guy for two years we're happy to have him in uh, and then we'll sell him on for a lot more money uh, in the very near future i saw one person pointing out that this is just a uh, five-dimensional chess by bayern munich to get him to dortmund to then get him in a couple years and that was pretty <laughs> hilarious uh but i think dortmund uh will be more than a little pleased to have uh, brought in holland at this early point it's a bit like Daniel Farker's five-dimensional chess by uh, getting caught out by VAR because they don't have it in the championship. He's just there we go. Ahead. There we uh, go. Yeah, but this, but this, um, yeah, this is interesting signing, isn't it? And it, it, the, the insinuation was that Manchester United were out of the race for Haaland mm. because of all the business of having to give his father yeah. and Mina Riola um, money. I mean, 
maybe it was out of loyalty to Roy Keane. We know how Roy Keane feels about his father. Um, <laughs> <Yep>. So <laughs> maybe it has something to do with that. I was but, wondering uh, if this was going to be an Alfinger Holland like, troll job of like, like stringing Man United along and then at the very last day... <laughs> they just end up signing with Borussia Dortmund. Instead, before the window even opens, he's uh, announced as a Dortmund player. So I guess uh, he'll be pleased there. That did feel like Manchester United sort of covering their bases by suddenly trying to appear as shrewd operators in the transfer market when in the past. <laughs> as, as though they're like, we don't want anything to do with Mino Raiola. It's like, well, you, you kind of didn't have that policy when you uh, signed Paul Pogba and went after many of his other clients. And given that he is a super agent at this point, I don't think you can really have that policy and continue to sign big-name players. So, uh, yeah, maybe a little bit of like justification explaining for Manchester United while Dortmund are just celebrating. Yeah, and I think Salzburg will feel that they might have wished they'd had a higher release clause than yeah. uh, than that for Haaland, isn't it? Because I do think you're right, Dortmund are going to probably cash in on him in a, in a year or two's time. They will indeed, and when they do, we will talk about it on the Total Soccer Show. Uh, and if it happens over the weekend, then Ryan Bailey and I will talk about it on the Total Woo! Soccer Show. Uh, as I said, we'll be back next week to recap all of those games. But for now, Ryan Bailey, any other topics you'd like to discuss, or shall we call it a day? I would like to very briefly point to the fact that Cristiano Ronaldo wants to be an actor. This is something he's mentioned, I'm sure he's mentioned it a couple of years ago. Yeah, can you please explain this? So (laughs) there's a story in Ass, my favorite, uh, Uh my favorite Spanish uh, uh, (laughs) tabloid, (laughs) where he's, we are children. Sorry. And I'm okay it with it. it. And I am okay with it. Yes. So yeah, he was obviously, Ronaldo was named after Ronald Reagan, the famous actor who's known for acting. Um, oh, so of course. The famous it's, in, it's in his spirit that he wants to become a, an actor at some point. He he wants to uh, study acting and become an actor. Uh, where's the quote here? One of the things I seek to challenge in myself, for example, is acting in a movie. I hope I live more than 50 years to learn... Oh, that's ambitious. I hope I live more than 50 years to learn new things <laughs> and face different challenges and try to find solutions for them. So one thing, Ronaldo is hoping he lives another 16 years or so, so that's good for him. Um, but he also wants to, to dedicate himself to the silver screen. My theory is, you know, there's that EGOT, which, which yep. actors try and win mm-hmm. where you get the... Any uh, Grammy, the Emmy, Oscar, Tony. The Grammy, Oscar, Tony. I think he wants the EGOT. BD, where he got the Emmy, the Grammy, the Oscar, the Tony, and the Ballon d'Or. He's going to be the first one to have one of those. Which of the four in the EGOT category do you think he could win most easily? Uh, I think uh, I'd like to see him get a Grammy, record an album of country music. That's what I want to see from Christian Ronaldo. See, see, I feel like you can backdoor that one by like record, like if you record your autobiography and then release that as an audiobook. I uh. think you can like technically win for like spoken word. But I, I appreciate your approach more of like, no, we're going all in. He's he's singing country. <laughs> <laughs> also, perfect. What, I think what kind of acting jobs would Ronaldo go for? Is it just ones where you have to jump really high? Is that what? What other qualities <laughs> does he have? They would lend themselves to acting. I feel like we'll see him in a Sharknado. Are they still making those? Like, I could see him in one of those, like, playing himself in, like, he's, like, kicks a soccer ball at a shark. That may have already happened. He may have already done that. Or somebody, mm-hmm. I feel like, has kicked a soccer ball at a shark at some point in one of those films. A Fast and Furious I could see him in as well. That's a good shout. They, I think Neymar was in a triple X. So maybe Ooh. we will see uh, R- Ronaldo in a Fast and Furious. Well, it's I a good way to Neymar's get Neymar's been in several triple X's, hasn't he? Didn't he get into lawsuits about that kind of thing? Or probably oh, whoop, well whoop, done, whoop, sir. Whoop, well whoop. done, sir. That's why we have Ryan Bailey here. Ryan Bailey, thank you so much for talking all things Premier League. A little Liga Mekis, a little Ronaldo's future. Uh, but for now, I just wanted to say thank you for chatting with me today. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure, never a chore. Happy New Year to all.